I will be playing the role of Jim Johnson this morning. And Justin, you're not fit. <laughs> More fit than me, I'll say, but <clears throat> I remember when you were like the picture of fitness. Um, <clears throat> good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure to be here this morning, um, and if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13, where we are going to continue our series on the teachings of Jesus, on what Jesus said. So the gospel according to Jesus, we usually think about the gospel according to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, but ultimately let us remember that it is the good news of God, is what the Apostle Paul uh, says in the book of Romans. It is the gospel or the good news of God uh, to the world to us this morning. Um, and before I actually begin kind of just walking into our text and walking through uh, the few verses that we have this morning, I would like to introduce to you uh, a good friend of mine. I said last week that he would be here. And so I want to, Michael, why don't you stand? So everyone, this is Mike Martinez. You can sit down. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Mike uh, was able to, to, to travel all the way. I, I learned more this morning. He went from Venezuela to Brazil, from Brazil to Colombia, from Colombia to Mexico, and then was uh, staying there for a while on, a, on an asylum uh, plan that he had. Uh, it's called an MPP plan, which just allows a number of people that are going through some pretty harsh difficulties, and there were a number of Venezuelans that are, were, were, were going through that. Uh, I was excited to hear from my son Matthew yesterday when we were just kind of catching up, and he's a good friend of Michael's, and so wanted him to make sure uh, that he knew that Michael was okay. Um, they actually helped, the Crossroads team actually helped 170 cross over uh, this just this past week, and they're hoping to do about another 250 this week. Um, so there's just been a number of uh, people from Central America, particularly Venezuela, uh, who have been waiting uh, for a number of things to, to transition, and so now that has happened. Uh, pray for, for Michael and for the opportunities that he is going to have here in Stillwater and to be a part of this fellowship. Um, also pray for the Gutierrez family, uh, which actually decided that they wanted to be in Owasso. And so one of our partner churches, First Church in Owasso, actually has the Gutierrez family, which I think you know them, don't you, Michael, the Gutierrez family? So we are, we're grateful to be able to, to partner with other churches and other ministries, being the hands and feet of Jesus. So this morning we are going to be dealing with this question from Matthew chapter 13, why do weeds exist? I don't know if you find weeds frustrating, um, I still remember when I was a little boy and my father taught me that uh, picking up dandelions entailed more than just kind of knocking their heads off, right? Do you remember that? I remember when I just thought to myself, well, isn't that the weed? And so my dad said, there are dandelions in the yard. I would like for you to, uh, to, to get rid of them. And I thought, oh, this is pretty easy. You just kind of walk up, grab the head, walk up to pull the, pull the yellow part off, right? And my dad said, okay, now all you've done is what? Made it more difficult for us to find them. So what appeared to be a rather simple process to deal with a weed problem, in the end, only complicated the problem. And, and I think that's a good lesson for us to realize, is that when the Lord's plan and the Lord's purpose is to bring his glory into the world, when the Lord's plan and the Lord's purpose is to deal with injustice, in a biblical way, in his own way, in his own timing. The, the one lesson that the scriptures seem to, teach, seems to teach quite consistently in the Bible is this, is that when, when, when humanity gets involved, 
when we get involved, and maybe in part because of our broken nature and our broken state, that we can, even with the best of intentions, just make things more complicated. I can't help but think that over the last year or so, as we have watched injustice happen in the world, and, and we, hopefully rightly, become deeply concerned about injustice, I, I've been, um, it's been interesting to me that many of the attempts to right injustice just complicates the problem, the best of intentions. Have we, haven't we seen this? Like, which, by, by the way, which then teaches us this. What, what we should all have is a sense of humility with the brokenness in the world. That maybe our very first response to weeds, to sin, um, to evil that exists in the world is, is not just offense, which then can easily lead to hubris or pride, or arrogance. And, and I think one of the problems that we have is that when we look at humility, it, it can first appear to us uh, like cowardice. Fair to say? No, 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 we should do something. That, that song that we just sang nailed it. I don't, I mean, you might have thought, wow, it's kind of an upbeat tune. The song essentially said that how I'm going to deal with the brokenness that exists in the world, in the midst of the storm, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna sing in the middle of the storm, and I'm going to raise a hallelujah. And I gotta say this, because we need to understand what this term means. Hallelujah does not mean woohoo. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean yeehaw. Nope. Doesn't even mean go pokes, right? It's not what it means. Hallel, praise. Yahweh. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. Now we use it as like a yippee. But that's not what it means. To say I'm going to raise a hallelujah in the midst of the storm. I'm going to respond to weeds, to sin, to the enemy. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing. Really? Like you think that'll work? Like you really think that somehow you singing is going to somehow change the world? And, and, and what Jesus does in this parable is he helps us understand that it isn't that. And we're, we're going to unpack this. It's not that that is all that we do. But the idea of raising a hallelujah in the midst of the storm, the idea of responding with song to adversity, um, to frustration, and to injustice is a position of oneself and a position of one's heart that says, no matter what is swirling around me, no matter what is going on about me, I somehow find uh, the ground to stand on. I somehow find the ability to work through it by recognizing who God is and responding to him. Which is, what, what, what do we do when we, when we see God? What do we do? We, 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 we praise him. He's good. And I was reminded in a, in a sermon a long time ago, and I, I just, I cannot shake this idea. 
he was talking about how do people who go through the greatest adversity, how do they sing? Like, are they, are they unaware? Do they not know? Do they not get it? And, and he said, Mr. Erickson said, what they are doing is they are doing one of the most Christian things in the world because they're not singing about life. See, if we sing about life, it's oh, woe is me. It's isn't life hard and isn't life, that would be my song, right? Oh, and by the way, it is occasionally good every other Thursday, right? I'll put that in my song. That's part of my song. But in the end, there's a lot of grief and a lot of pain and a lot of frustration. He said, Mr. Erickson said, but they're not singing about life. They're singing about God. And he's always good in the middle of the storm. He is always trustworthy in the darkest of night. And, and that's what it means. That's... Uh, the, the Psalms do this. The Psalms actually seem to present that the way Israel, when it is faithful, responds to its enemies. Okay? Now, you might think this foolish, but it is biblical, right? Which, by the way, looks foolish to the world. And if I'm going to be honest, sometimes it looks foolish to me. But the Psalms say, we will defeat our enemies with a song. Hmm. It, it, by the way, if, if you do any studying of the civil rights movement in the 60s, so much of their work was actually done in churches in song, singing. And hear me, it's certainly not all they did, but it sure gave them the perspective on then how to live. And, and that's what we actually see here. Why? Why? Why do weeds exist? Why does God, have you ever wondered, like, why does God allow so much brokenness in the world? And, and I find what is very, very interesting is, is that in this parable, the part that Scott slash Justin read this morning, that in that parable, Jesus himself puts the words that we're all thinking into the mouths of the disciples, it's not the disciples. We're going to actually come behind it and actually see what happens when the disciples come to Jesus and go, okay, we didn't get that parable. Like, we didn't understand that. Matthew 13 is a list of seven parables where Jesus is describing what the kingdom is like in the world. And in verse 11, the disciples say, we don't get, what, why, why do you speak in parables? Why do you use these stories? And Jesus says, I use these stories because those people who don't want to know, they're going to go, oh, this is foolish, and they're going to walk away. And those people who do want to know are going to lean in and draw close and say, will you please explain some more? And that's exactly what the disciples did with this parable. Matthew 13 begins by Jesus leaving his house and going out and preaching to the multitudes. And after he tells this parable, he goes back into his house. And the disciples follow him into the house and they go, okay, you really need to explain this last one to me. And I find it interesting that it's not the disciples who say, can we go pull up all those weeds? Can we go out right now and deal with all of the problems that exist? It's not, Jesus puts those words in there. He knows our hearts, does he not? He knows that the best of us, 
when we see something that is wrong? The majority of us, when we know that there is something that is wrong, we want to do something about it, and we want to do something about it yesterday. And, and then we look up into heaven and we say, God, do you not see what is happening? Do you not see all the weeds that exist in the world, all the sin that exists in the world? Do you not see all the evil that exists in the world? Now, this is why it's very interesting, is because the disciples believed that once Messiah comes, once the king comes, then everything will be put back into order, right? Once, once mom and dad show up, they'll, 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 this will be, be a good place again, right? The babysitter's not, not doing a good job. But once mom and dad come home, we'll at least have some order, right? Which, by the way, is maybe why we like the babysitter more. But once the king comes, he'll put everything back into order, and Jesus comes, and he claims, I am Messiah, I am king. And they're thinking, great, let's, let's get this going. Let's put this in order. I can think of a number of things that need to happen. And then to their eyes and to their hearts, it's not happening. And you and I know how that feels, don't we? And I believe that we are at a very interesting time, at least in our lives, where it seems to us that brokenness is growing. More and more families falling apart. More and more injustices. And we, we like to say, well, yeah, but it's just that now everything is just so in front of us with the internet and with social media. and with, Now everything in the whole world is in front of our faces. Sure. But you do realize that just means that it's always been there. Except now I have to deal with it 24-7. And it is just overwhelming. And so we know what it's like and Jesus puts the words into our mouths, can we get out into that field and deal with the problem? And, and Jesus responds, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to beginning in verse 36. This is Jesus' response. And then he left the crowds and he went into his house, into the house, it's actually his house. His disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he replied, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And that's, by the way, an image from the book of Daniel. Uh, it is an image of, of God coming back and God judging. It's a judgment idea. Often, us, often we think about son of God that describes Jesus' divinity, son of man that describes Jesus' humanity. Really, not really. <laughs> It actually is, a, is, a, is an image of the one who will come and make things right. And so Jesus uses that title for himself as judge. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. So those who are wheat are those who are in the kingdom and they are children of the king. They are people who are responding to God. They are responding to the word of God. They are being, we know now, being filled by the spirit of God. So these are, the, this is the good seed. This is the wheat. And then he says in verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them, this is the, the weed, is the devil. Sorry, the weeds are the children of the evil one. I guess I skipped a part. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, 
and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Because that's answering their question a little bit. Because I think one of our questions about injustice and our desire to get out into the field and into the mud and into the muck and to deal with this is because we, we wonder, do we not? We wonder if God is ever going to do anything. Because all I see is brokenness upon brokenness. All I see is things going from bad to worse. And, and we become, do we, not, do, we, do we not become discouraged? Do we not become disheartened? Wondering when, when will things turn around and be better? And, and Jesus points out, that there will be a time and it will be at the end of the age, verse 41, and the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those who are guilty of lawlessness. They'll be, they'll be thrown into a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. And then he says here, which is one of my favorite statements that Jesus ever makes. And, and he says this when he speaks into a crowd of people. And interestingly enough, he even now says it to his disciples. He offers an invitation. And he says, let anyone who has ears listen let anyone who has ears to hear, this is how we usually translate this, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's, it actually goes back to in verse 11 of Matthew 13 when the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? Jesus quotes Isaiah 6 and he says, because then those who hear, they will be able to hear, but those who don't wanna hear, they won't be able to hear. It's what Jesus says about those who really like want to see, they'll be able to see, but those who don't want to see, those who spend all of their time covering their eyes to God's truth, they will remain forever blind. And so Jesus says to his disciples, listen, I have given you a parable, and um, if you have the ability to hear it, and I want to say that for us as a church, there is some very interesting and even difficult instruction in this parable and it is not my job here this morning to make it more palatable for you, for us. It is not my responsibility to somehow smooth out the difficult parts of this text, but to speak them in truth and to explain them to the best of my ability under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit in, in a way that you and I are then also humbled and confronted by the truth of Jesus in terms of what he teaches here. I think there are four real simple things that I, I believe this, this parable teaches us. And then you and I have the, the, the privilege and the opportunity to then work them out under the direction of God's word and the, the totality of his counsel Within the, the, um, the joy of doing it within biblical community, I, I hope that messages like this stir up conversations among the saints, among uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that say, listen, how do we live out the truths of the kingdom and the truth of this parable? How do we live that out? 
so that we might remain in obedience to who Jesus Christ is under his instruction. How do we live this out? And, and then we do that under the word of God in the, in the context of biblical community, guided by his Holy Spirit, which he promised to all of us who have been joined with him in baptism. These are, I, I think, four things that really kind of speak to this parable. The first one is this, that evil is real. That evil is real. You, you might say, wow, okay, that, that didn't need a lot of work, did it? You came up with that one pretty quick. And the answer is, you're right. But, but it's, it's interesting that like, it's, not a, it's not a perspective. Evil's not about a perspective. Because we are really big on what's evil for you might not be evil for me. What's wrong for you might not be wrong for me. But for Jesus, things are a lot more clear cut. He doesn't have like five different camps of people. He doesn't have seven different options. No, there is good wheat and there is bad weeds. And that kind of clarity can be very frustrating for many of us. Because in the end, um, we almost enjoy a little bit of a, a, a perspective. Well, I don't know if that's how you see it, but I don't know if that's how I see it. But for Jesus, it is very clear. Evil is in fact real. And evil is those who are working in opposition to what God is doing. It's as simple as the parable itself. That there, there is wheat that is intended to be in this field, and a farmer wants that wheat, right? Because that wheat is going to produce a harvest. It's going to produce a yield. And that is the desire of the farmer. That is the desire of the one who sowed the seed into the field. And, and yet, there is within that field, there is something that is not right, that is not there. It, it probably is true that the word that Jesus uses here for the tares, so we, some of you have a kind of an older translation in your mind, you know the wheat and the tares. But those weeds, those tares, are, are actually a kind of weed that at the very beginning stages looks a lot like wheat, and a lot of scholars love to talk about maybe that's why Jesus picked this particular form of weed. Uh, it's, it's not as simple as dandelions in a land of fescue. It's a lot more complicated than that. Not only that, it's, it's very interesting. I, I don't know how much the disciples really knew this, but I know Jesus knew this, that the root systems of, these wheat, of this wheat and this t- these tares, this weed, these weeds, would, would somehow, they would actually inter, intermix. They would, they would be bound together. And so a bunch of uh, individuals going out into a field and ripping up what almost looks like the same, uh, many, many scholars say that one of the reasons why Jesus even gives in a very practical sense, I don't know if, uh, if the right person would even know what wheat is and what a tear would be at certain stages. And when you just start ripping it up, and this is Jesus' statement, isn't it? Jesus actually says, I don't want you to go romping around in the field trying to rip things up because you'll actually do more damage to the wheat. And then you and I, in our arrogance, believe, no, 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 not me. I, I, it's, it's clear to me who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Isn't it? That's what we think. It is so clear to me. I know exactly who good guys are and who bad guys are. And I, I really do. If they put me in charge, if you, maybe you've been thinking in the last year or so, if they put me in charge, things would be different. Yeah. And, and Jesus wants to point out and there's only one that knows how to do this. And, and why? Because evil is real. It's very real. There are those that are opposing God. 
and there are those that are against his will and his way. And so a lot of the brokenness that exists in the world is not just coincidence. It's very intentional and very, very broken. Which, by the way, means that a lot of the frustration that we have, I believe, is actually given to us by the Spirit. Is given to us, those who are sensitive to the brokenness that exists. The second thing that we actually see is that there is an enemy, and his job is to make more enemies. So not only is evil is real, but Jesus calls him out, says what? The person who did this, the person who sowed the bad seed is the devil. And and we might doubt whether or not he exists, but the Bible definitely believes he exists. Jesus believes it. The reason why I believe that the devil is real and the devil exists and that a lot of the activity, I would never say all, you gotta be very careful believing that all the evil in the world is just the devil running around doing everything. I don't think the scriptures actually teach that. But in this parable, it describes that the injustice and the brokenness that exists in the world is caused by him. Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? And he says, an enemy did this. An enemy did this. And so as, as you and I, this might even explain some of our frustration, as you and I are doing the best to put our lives back together, to put our families back together, to put our, uh, our homes back together, to build our communities back together, how many of you have actually felt in one of those relationships that it is one step forward, two steps back? Why is it that whenever we begin to see some progress in our relationships, in our community, that all of a sudden it just seems to be undone, I would say that we should be mindful, prayerfully and intentionally mindful that there is still an enemy seeking to undo what we are doing. Why are you shocked? Why are you surprised? I would dare say that one of the reasons why I'm so offended, why I'm so shocked, is because I fail to recognize the simple truth of this parable. That there is still an enemy and his, his, his job, like his, uh, his, one of his greatest delights is to create more enemies to the work that God is doing. I just don't understand why everything that I'm doing right just seems to be unraveling in front of me. One of the reasons why is because there is an enemy and he is making more enemies of the work of God and the plan of God. Like this should shape, I would argue, how we look at life, how we watch the news, how we respond on social media, aware that there is an enemy. I I think it's even interesting for us to hear the words of Paul on this. Paul says, we do not war against flesh and blood, but we war against principalities and powers. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean that there's not responsibility and culpability within humanity. No, there is. But there's also an enemy who is making more enemies. This is, I think, one of the most difficult things for us to do, is to come to this realization that you are not the judge. By the way, that doesn't mean we don't make judgments. It doesn't mean that we don't actually speak out against things. The the Bible actually teaches that we do that. This parable cannot undo everything that Jesus has taught. It has to fit alongside of everything else that Jesus has taught. And Jesus has taught that when you see a speck in a brother or sister's eye, 
We remove the log from our own, and then we address. When Jesus actually teaches is that when a brother or sister sins against you, you go to that brother and sister and you speak to them. You don't just sit back. This is not a text. Jesus never preaches passivity. But he does say, be careful how you judge. For the measure for which you will be, you will be judged is the measure that you judge others. And you can't just go, well, then I'm not going to say anything. No, because that just brings a whole different kind of judgment. And I think it is good for us to realize that you are not the judge. I don't know where you got the idea or where I got the idea that it was our job to fix everybody on Facebook. Correct every statement that anyone has ever made. You do know that blah, 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 right? Have you got any of those? Then you have like a follow-up conversation at Aspen to kind of smooth out the problems. Have you had one of those in the last year? Promise you you have. Because I'm, I'm, I'm here to help you understand. I'm here to correct you. I'm, I'm here to speak up for those. Yeah, no, I, I listen, and I get it. it. It's the difficult part of knowing not just, not just what to say, but when to say it. And, and I'm thinking that at least the concept of humility is necessary for us so that we can understand that we are not the judge. I had a professor in college, and I'm so grateful for this, because those of us in ministry have, I think, a great temptation for this, to run around and fix everybody. And, and Brother Bowles would say to us often, who gave you the referee's jersey? Again, it doesn't mean that we say nothing, but it does mean that we realize who, we, who the judge ultimately is. Notice the words of Jesus. So do you want us, this is actually the words of the, of the, of the servants. So do you want us to go pull them all up? The servants asked him, no, he said, because when you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. I'm reminded of this. Uh, we, we often talk about like righteous indignation. That's what we need. We need righteous indignation. James, the brother of Jesus, actually says, here's what he says, that men and women, their anger does not bring about God's righteousness. Wow. Like that's a truth that I need to hear when I just become so upset, and I believe that being upset really is going to cause like help here or fix this. What I really need is to get really, really, really upset. Biblical advice to that is, is that you are now in more danger of doing more damage and more destruction. And that is why I think Jesus gives us a whole different way to even look at our enemies. We pray for them, we turn the other cheek, we walk the second mile. Why? But when, when are things gonna get done around here? And Jesus says, I promise you, God is going to deal with all of his enemies. It's the fourth principle. God is going to deal with all of his enemies. Church, do you believe that? I mean, truly, do you trust him? As we speak out against, and we do so, hmm, the truth in love is how we speak. And as we give a completely, an alternative way to live and to be married and to raise our children, do we trust that that itself, do we actually believe that you and I in this room raising a hallelujah can actually change the world? 
Why do we believe that? Because what we actually believe is that God is going to deal with all of his enemies. Jesus says in verse 30 of the text, let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell, you the, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. I, I found this to be very interesting. Um, one commentator, F.D. Bruner, says this, that whenever Jesus speaks about hellfire, he's usually not doing it, uh, maybe exclusively, he never does it, trying to warn the world, trying to warn the wicked of their coming judgment. He actually speaks it into his, uh, his fellowship, into, his, into, the, into the crowds that actually believe they might be disciples. He, he uses it when he speaks about it to warn those who think they might be following him, the judgment will come. And and that's what Jesus is now saying to his disciples. Like, judgment is going to come. And and do you trust that the Lord, in his timing and in, in his goodness, will do a better job than you and I could ever do? Have you ever noticed that when the church the church specifically decides to get involved and begin to run things in the world, you can go back through history and how messed up it becomes? Why? And, and I would say because that was never our design. It was never our intent. But instead, we have been called to be gospel witnesses to who Jesus Christ is. To demonstrate in our own lives that there is no injustice that exists in me. And to follow him in such a way that we can say even within our communities and in our families that what you see in us is wheat. What you see in us is truth. What you see in us is God's plan being worked out. And the real question that the disciples have to deal with is that are you going to be comfortable with recognizing what you can do and what you can't do? Are you going to accept the fact that there are going to be limits to what we can do in the world? And there's always a group of people that say, no, we need to be revolutionaries. And I understand the temptation. I would just say this, is that what Jesus actually teaches is that we already are revolutionaries. Remember what did we learn last week? We are salt and we are light. And God is the judge. And we will be content to follow him, to speak out, to speak up, to defend. But we leave the judging to God believing that he is the only one to do it right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us and plans and purposes for us. And God, we pray that you would help us understand and to see this right. God, bring us to a a deeper and a more profound peace with you. And God, I pray that through Jesus Christ, we would know what it means. We would know what it means to be your children as we believe and trust in your kingdom being worked out in your timing for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray, amen. And so now we remember what Jesus Christ has accomplished and I can't help but think that this whole act of Jesus dying in our place for our sins is quite revolutionary, quite shocking. One of the most difficult things the disciples had to try to figure out was how does Jesus dying on a cross, how does that fix anything? It doesn't seem to be very powerful or very strong. 
And, and yet we see the greatest demonstration of God's power and God's love at the cross. Let us not forget the ways of God are foolishness to humanity. But for those of us who are being saved, it is amazing grace. So let us take the body of Christ and eat it remembering the way of Christ. And let us take the cup and drink it in celebration of who he is. And now let us stand and worship well.